0: The smoldering embers of media attention have burst into flames once again, fueled by fresh allegations of abusive priests in the Roman Catholic Church. While Roman Catholic priests take a vow of celibacy, one reporter claimed recently that 40% are sexually active. I don't know how exactly they would determine that, but uh, with the majority of those involved in homosexual behavior. And left in the wake of this deviance, this broken system, are countless victims of abuse throughout the world. CNN reported the ordeal of one woman named Helen who has filed lawsuit claiming that she, her sister, and her mother were all abused by a priest who is known to be a pedophile in Rhode Island. Her mother went insane. Her sister committed suicide. And Helen, some 35 years later, is in therapy. She says that she wants the church to apologize for placing a known pedophile in her home parish and to take responsibility for destroying her family. But thus far, she reports to CNN, she has received neither. Now, Helen's is a staggeringly painful story. But I choose her story by way of introduction, not for sensationalism, but in part to say we understand perhaps very few of us would need to deal with such levels of pain, but her suffering exhibits the common experience of being wronged by someone who has never repented or asked forgiveness and probably never will. It's not just in one church. It's not just in one country. This is an experience of human beings throughout the world. Most of the offenses committed against us will be less and perhaps even pale in comparison with what Helen has suffered. Yet they hurt. And they can equally control our lives and poison our spirits. As we think by way of review on this topic of forgiveness, last week we noted the call that we have as believers in Christ to cover sin. That is to not need to bring a matter of offense to an individual, but to cover over it. And there were four tests that indicate that we can in fact do that. The first test being the personal test. Though this sin has been committed against me, I'm not bitter in soul. I'm not, I don't have a poisoned spirit. I'm able to work through this matter on my own and I can be at peace with what has been done. The second test, the relational test. This sin has not caused any particular problem between me and this person. It might even be something, an offense that I have taken this person doesn't even know uh, know anything about. But it's not caused a relational barrier between us. The third test, the moral test. The sin committed against me is not an entrenched sin in the heart and life of the individual who committed it. And fourthly, the testimonial test. That is... This sin is not a matter of denigrating the reputation of Christ. Now, in Helen's case, obviously, all four of these tests would not be passed. This is a matter that needs to be addressed, and forgiveness needs to be given. But if any one of these tests fails in our life, the sin needs to be addressed as we pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness, indeed, we find in its base sense, in its primary sense, is conditioned upon repentance. If my offender repents and asks forgiveness, I must forgive. Seventy times seven, says Jesus. Whenever repentance is made, forgiveness must be granted. And when I forgive, what do I do? I release my offender from the liability of his or her sin against me promising to release the guilt of that person's sin and to never permit it to have a destructive impact upon our relationship again. I take that sin now, which has been confessed, and I hand it to God. And I put it in the care of the God who has paid the penalty of sin. And I leave it there forever. Maybe may be a lifelong process of striving to remain in the right attitude and spirit toward this person, but this sin will never again come between us in our relationship because repentance has been forthcoming, forgiveness has been granted, and the matter has been covered by the blood of Christ. But the question that was raised last week that was not addressed is what does God want me to do if I rebuke someone's sin against me as Luke 17 directs and he or she refuses to repent? What if that person thinks I am the one who's wrong and refuses to consider personal responsibility? How do I respond in such a situation? What if I'm not even able to confront the person who has wronged me? Indeed, in Helen's case, the priest that has caused her so much heartache was imprisoned and died there some years ago. What now? What do we do? Well, the common answer, as we've chased it a bit last week, is to extend unconditional, unilateral forgiveness to the person in my heart. Privately, I take care of this process before me and God, and I forgive them unilaterally the problem is this is not at all how God operates God does not forgive in this way and we are commanded to follow his example Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4 forgive as God in Christ forgave you God does not forgive unrepentant sinners A second problem with the idea of unilateral, unconditional forgiveness is that there may be some benefit from such psychological release from the inner turmoil caused by this sin, but it is a faulty release. It fails to address entrenched sin in the life of the offender. I've forgiven. The matter's over. It's all in my heart. I don't talk to this person. I don't need to deal with the sin in this person's life. Secondly, it fails to address the reproach to Christ this sin may be causing. It fails to address the harm to others that may be taking place. These sins, relational sins, often have roots. There's often problems that are taking place in other people's lives. I don't need to deal with that if I just forgive in my heart and move on. Perhaps worst of all, it avoids the hard work of reconciliation with that person, either through his or her conversion or eventual restoration as a repentant believer. I just don't have to do that hard, patient work. I forgive and I move on. It has nothing really ultimately to do with the relationship ongoing between me and that person. And so on a number of lines, and we could chase others, there's some serious problems with that kind of approach, which is very common. But if this is the case, if I'm not to forgive an unrepentant sinner who has harmed me, what should I do with the harm that's been done and its results in my heart? As I mentioned this by way of extended application, I have four lines of thought. These are not all encompassing. They're somewhat interlocking. They're all necessary to bring to the page. But I offer them as a starting place, realizing that the various circumstances of our lives and the various things that we're dealing with may need to be addressed and worked out in various ways. But I think these four will be serviceable to all of us. I'm dealing with someone who has harmed me, who has wronged me in some way. Maybe it's a grand crime against my soul. Maybe it's something very small that has just caused me great trial. Whatever the case, I think the first thing that we need to do is to adopt God's stance toward your offender. Adopt God's stance... Toward your offender. What is that stance? If our offender is unsaved, God holds out to this person the message of forgiveness through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. He calls the unbeliever to turn from sin and to be reconciled to Him. This is God's stance toward an unbeliever. Remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It was not an announcement that God had forgiven everyone's sin. His sermon was this. Jesus has died, repent, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That is, the audience had to act, had to move, had to change the call to repentance. Those who refuse to repent of their ungodly ways are, according to Ephesians 2, by nature objects of God's wrath. Jesus does not want unbelievers to remain in their sin, but if they do, they remain unforgiven. And so our hearts should be heavy with the realization that this person who has wronged me stands under the wrath of God. This individual who's wronged me is blinded by Satan, lost in sin, and destined for destruction. To such a person, we should extend the hope of the gospel. We should hope and pray that this person will one day be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, this person has harmed me. Not anything like this person has harmed God. So I adopt God's stance towards this individual. Provision has been made. His arms are open. He calls an individual to repentance. He doesn't forgive. Now That's not the end of the matter. We need to mesh this with the three following points. But let's apply this idea, taking the stance of God toward a believer. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. When a brother or sister sins against me, if they are not repentant, they have fallen out of fellowship with God. God does not extend relational forgiveness to such a believer, so I cannot ultimately forgive him or forgive her either. Now, we can know that this individual is judicially forgiven, past, present, and future. But if he confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive that sin. Therefore, this person stands in a state before Christ of unrepentance at this moment concerning this matter. And so, like God, I need to take up a stance... Of open-armed invitation, calling the sinner to repentance, seeking reconciliation. The work has been done by Christ to pay the penalty of sin. Now it's just a matter of a person coming to confession. But I stand there as Christ stands there toward me. When brothers or sisters in Christ sin against us, we can know that Jesus died to pay the penalty of their sin. We can rest in that no matter the harm done to us personally. We can rest where God rests. So it's vital to pursue reconciliation as we deal with that sin, seeking to bring brother and brother, sister and sister, brother and sister back into right relationship. Now let me tie back now into a previous series. This is also a place where church discipline comes into If a believer's actions indeed dishonor the name of Christ, the believer should be confronted and held accountable by the church. A healthy church body will labor to assure that believers remain reconciled to one another. Churches working with churches. Believers working within a church. But if a person has genuinely sinned and is genuinely walking in an unrepentant position... The church should really love that person enough to call them to account, to hold them accountable and to work with them through this process. Now here's where a lot of Christians really get disconnected. This is a matter between me and that person. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18, any matter between us and another individual should ultimately be brought out of that circle if there is not repentance and change. Churches should be laboring as hard as individuals to bring issues to repentance, to forgiveness. But a healthy church body will not allow such a relationship to simply go on unaddressed. The matter needs to be addressed. It needs to be brought to a head. And by God's grace, as believers work together, situations such as this can be resolved. Even as churches work with churches. So, first, I take the stance that God takes toward this individual, which is not to grant unilateral forgiveness, but which is to stand with open arms saying, the price of sin has been paid. Repent. Confess. Return. That's the stance God takes. That's the stance I should take toward this individual. Not this is my ultimate enemy. Not this is someone that I hate. But this is someone for whom God has provided a way of forgiveness. And so I stand with open arms providing forgiveness. Secondly, how do I relate to a person when forgiveness is impossible? That secondly, to submit to God's sovereign design for the offense. Nothing happens in this world that does not serve God's ultimate purposes. If you have suffered wrong, if you have been wronged at the hand of another, if you have been sinned against, you can know that God has a purpose for that experience. And that He will use it for good. It's not that God is a pretty good God, is is fairly sovereign in the world, and most things He's able to work with. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all things. And that all things, as Romans 8 says, work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What is that purpose? To conform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Not to make us comfortable. If Christianity was an escape from suffering, the people would be lined up down the street to get in here today. That's not what it is. It's not a deliverance from suffering. And God uses the suffering that He designs for us in this life to change us, to develop us, to mature us. We can know that whatever the suffering is, however wrong that person is, as horrifyingly wrong and unfair and unjust as any sin is, in there, God will use that sin and use our suffering for good. Not that it is good but he will use it for good. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 50. Now let's think about this again. We get so used to the story, it doesn't really hit us so hard, but he was sold into slavery by his brothers. You can imagine what's going on in his heart as he is now incarcerated, taken into captivity, and heading down to Egypt, never knowing if he'll be free again on this planet. And his brothers did that to him. What does Joseph say to them at the end of the account? You meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God had a good purpose which he worked out in Joseph's life by means of his brother's sin. And Christian, it's no different for you and for me. And we need to recognize that any experience, any harm that is done to us, as horrifying as it may be, there is good that God will work through it. He's not calling it good. He's not dismissing it. He's not saying that it's fair. But He is saying, I will use it to bring about My glory and Your good. Know that about every path of suffering. In every trial we face. Do you remember what Jesus said in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. He was about to suffer the greatest tragedy, the greatest injustice that has ever taken place and ever will. And He said, not my will, but yours be done. When we suffer at the hand of others, we need to take on the same spirit of submission to God's purposes and say, Your will be done. Knowing that God is never at a loss, but will work all things together for good. Third, nurture the right spirit toward your offender. Here I would like us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 once again Ephesians 4 and verse 31. Ephesians 4 verse 31. What we need to do as we work with this individual, as we work concerning this experience, is to put away sinful attitudes. To put away sinful attitudes. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 says, "...let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice." All hatred. We cannot do this in our own strength. It cannot happen. But these are attitudes from which Jesus died to save us. We have been, chapter 2, made alive together with Christ. God has, verse 6 of chapter 2, raised us up with Jesus and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As verse 10 of that chapter says, we are now created in Christ Jesus for good works. God did not save us from the wrongs that others would commit against us but neither did He save us to be bitter, angry, argumentative, slanderous, and hateful. He saved us to face the same kinds of trials that the rest of the world suffers, but to do so identifying with Christ, putting away these natural attitudes, and walking in faithfulness with Him to take on a otherworldly spirit toward the crimes that we suffer let's just think on that word bitterness and just hone in there for a moment when I sin and I'm unrepentant I feel guilty now guilt is not a feeling only It's, it's primarily a condition before God we are guilty whether we feel it or not but I do have feelings of guilt if I am a genuine believer who has sinned against God and is unrepentant I feel guilty bitterness is the other side of that it's when someone else has sinned and is unrepentant can actually be when they're repentant as well depending on my sin but very much the case when that person is unrepentant they have done wrong to me and remain unrepentant i can allow a root of bitterness to form in my soul Just as the guilt of unrepentant sin can eat me alive, so bitterness over someone's wrong can eat me alive as well. And what is God's counsel? Here we need to sit up straight and hear it. It's very straightforward. He says, put it away. Wow. Something that causes that much trial and heartache and that difficult and God's word and counsel to us as his people is put it away. But think on chapter 2 of Ephesians. Why? Because we are new in Christ. We are new people empowered by the Spirit of God. It is not a spirit, bitterness, with which the indwelling Spirit of God is at home. So set it outside of your heart. Put it away. Now, how does the world deal with bitterness? How does an unbeliever deal with bitterness? It poisons his soul. Or if a person is not willing to let that happen that person begins to spew the bitterness toward those around and spreads the poison. But there really is no other way. It can perhaps be drugged for a while. Chasing idols can allow us to forget about the bitterness momentarily. But really, the only thing a believer an unbeliever can do is live in a world of bitterness if they don't just simply forget what's happened. But we notice here that God has a very different call upon our lives. It is put it away. Uproot the bitterness and be done with it. Because it's not who you are. And let me just say as a side note, the worst bitterness of all is the bitterness that corrupts not only my relationship with that person, but corrupts my relationship with God. It is the insanity of sin. Of the worst sort, someone harms me by disobeying God and I respond by disobeying God. Someone sins against me because they are out of fellowship with God, not honoring Him, and I respond exactly the same way. That's insanity. Insanity. Don't ever allow anyone's sin against you to harm your relationship with God from whom all blessings flow, the only source of goodness and love and mercy in our lives. Why would we allow someone else's sin to corrupt our relationship with God? Pull out the root of bitterness. Do not allow it to fester. Don't allow that person's sin to harm your relationship with God. A positively, we find in Ephesians 4, what we're not to do is verse 31. What we are to do, verse 32, is be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, as we looked at this last week. But be kind to one another and tender-hearted. 1 Corinthians 13 says of love, love is patient and kind. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 6, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. James said, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the relationship that we are to pursue, the attitude that we are to have with those who harm us. All of this, I think, needs to find completion in this fourth point, And that is, overcome your offender's evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 12. At verse 17, we join a series of loosely connected exhortations that are grounded in the transformational grace of salvation in Christ that's described earlier in the book. And it is profound. But under special consideration here, for one who has been transformed by Christ, we are instructed on how we are to relate to those who harm us. The context perhaps has primarily in view those who harm us who are not believers. As verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. But certainly, this instruction is applicable even to our relationship with believers. But let's note it at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When someone wrongs me, retaliation is the wrong response. If someone treats us in a dishonorable manner, it will accomplish nothing to respond in a dishonorable manner. Do not act to even the score. Act so as to stand commended by any objective bystander who judges the situation. And perhaps chief among those bystanders would be godly counsel. Someone that could provide godly wisdom to say, yes, you're doing what is right. Don't repay evil for evil. 1 Thessalonians 5 says it this way, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone Peter said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Matthew 5, Jesus taught us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, verse 17 here, don't repay evil for evil. Do what is right. Verse 18, if possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What is honorable in the sight of others is in part to live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, it may not be possible. There may be nothing you can do about the situation, but as far as lies with you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 19, Beloved. Let's just stop there just for a moment. Beloved. Think of that. He addresses us as people whose sins have been propitiated by Christ because of God's love. As a born-again believer in Christ, I live every moment of my life as a forgiven man. God has mercifully canceled the infinite debt of my sin, and I cannot live any other way than as one forgiven. Such a state will radically influence every human relationship, including my relationship with those who harm me and do wrong against me. I am forgiven. I am one beloved by God. Beloved. Beloved. Verse 19, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord. Let me say this Lord is not known by many Christians in our day. They don't know such a Lord. One who says vengeance is mine and I will repay. But our God is a God of infinite love and we see that as we've already discussed it in numerous ways throughout this message, but he is not only a God of love but also of justice. He's both. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But to us, what is the instruction? Give place to this wrath, the Greek would have it. Give place to this wrath. Do not elbow God out of the way by exercising justice against the one who wrongs you. Leave space for God to operate. Parents, we know how this goes. It's easy for us to see that. One child does something against another, hits another child, and the other one responds by hitting back. Well, there isn't a whole lot to be done now uniquely to the first one, is there? Justice has already been served on some level. Wrong has now been done by both. But it's a very different story when one child hits the other and the other deals with it appropriately and appeals to you for help in this offense. Well, that first perpetrator hasn't been dealt with at all. Now it's up to me to take care of this person because the other child has done what's right and turned it over to the authority. We see this. This is what God is saying. Give me room to operate with this sinner. I know this person has sinned. I've died for this person. I know this person has sinned. Judgment may indeed fall, but listen, let me have room to work. Don't take up my job and try to make things even I need to remember that if my offender is an unbeliever, according to John 3.18 and 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that person stands under the wrath of God and will someday face that judgment unless they're converted. If for one moment of time we could glimpse the person who has harmed us standing before the white-hot fury of God's just wrath, we would weep for them. And it would temper how we take the offense. If my offender is a believer, is a born-again follower of Christ, I must recognize that God's judgment fell on Jesus, who satisfied the wrath of God against Him so that now there is no condemnation for this believer. Now, we don't always know who is a genuine believer and who is not. But the truth of the matter is, when someone really does something wrong to us, even a believer in Christ, that's sometimes kind of hard to take. That the judgment has already been paid by Christ. Now, I think some of us are probably, all of us I'm sure at times, play the part of the closet Jonah. We don't really want God to forgive others. We rejoice in it ourselves. But if we don't like that a sinner has been forgiven and stands in a forgiven state before God, how can we rejoice in our own salvation? Christ is greatly honored by purchasing our forgiveness. Do we imagine that taking revenge will bring honor to us? Spurgeon said, A heathen philosopher used to say, If an ass kicks you, is it necessary for the maintenance of your honor to kick the ass back? But then he really drives the knife when he says how much more when the offender is not a donkey but a believer in Christ. Jesus modeled this for us. God's not asking us to do something He's not done. When He was reviled, Peter wrote, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges Justly, Not responding this way, verse 19. To the contrary, positively, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Much disputed as to the meaning, and I don't propose to offer the last word on it, but very possibly a picture of shame and contrition. That is, our loving actions toward one who has violated us can win the heart and bring about the repentance for which we rightly hope. Not to say that it will. Whatever burning coals upon his head might mean, Jesus is not calling us to vengeance here. But He is saying these hard words, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. As Jesus said in Luke 6, but I say to you, you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And then by way of general summarizing principle, He says in verse 21, here it is, the clincher, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We cannot make someone stop hating us or despising us or ignoring us. We cannot make someone repent of their sin against us, but we can labor to make sure that we do not hate and despise and ignore and that we are repentant of our own sin. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Overcome evil. With good. This is just the start. And there are many complications that come with the various circumstances of our difficulties with people in a fallen world. There's much we are not able to cover here, and perhaps it's easy to misread, to read into uh, such comments the wrong thing. So we need to talk privately, personally, to interact on these matters as we talk about application. Getting us thinking about how do I relate to that person that will not repent, that will not come clean, where justice has not been served yet at this point. I think we have seen that unilateral, unconditional forgiveness is a quick way around the transformational fires that God designs to refine us. And when a sinner is unrepentant, God never responds sinfully. He does not forgive, and we are to follow what God does. He remains patient. He remains merciful. He remains good. And He stands with open arms. For those of us who have trusted Christ the Savior, we can give thanks for this merciful God who forgives His enemies. And we can give thanks. We can give thanks that while we were His enemies, Christ did not merely feed us. He did not merely give us drink. He died in our place as the bread of life. We'll never hunger again. He gave us the drink of His eternally satisfying spirit. I'll never thirst again. For those who have not trusted Christ as Savior, the fact that your heart is beating is God's pure mercy. But know that someday His vengeance will fall upon unrepentant sinners. He promises this. It must happen because He is just in light of the mercy of God who died to redeem sinners, I plead with you then to be reconciled to God. Don't try to clean up your sin. Turn from it. Place it in His hands. He's paid the penalty. And He stands always towards sinners with open arms saying, Turn and come. Come and receive forgiveness. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we praise You for Your love and for Your justice. And while we tremble at times, we thank You for the comfort that we find in Your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We live in a sinful world. You know our hearts and You know that those who have sinned against us many times they haven't sinned in the way we think. Sometimes we're more wrong than they are and don't see it. And we know that our attitude toward those who offend us is often far from Christ-like. We confess our sins. Pray that You will help us to model and live out the life of Christ as we relate to those who wrong us. And I pray, Father, for anyone separated from Christ that You would bring them to the light of salvation today according to Your purposes and in Your mercy. Teach us and move us to become the people that You want us to be. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.